Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Let's look at the last two verses of Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Now I'm going to read it in just a second and I'm going to pray. But let me put this thought in your mind. Today, we're going to look at what I think is one of the most clear and important in regards to helping our sanctification doctrines in the whole Bible, and that is the doctrine of the final perseverance, or maybe better said, the preservation of Christians. In other words, I don't think that a Christian who is truly born again can lose their salvation. I believe in, and I think the Bible teaches this, the, the perseverance, the preservation of the saints, meaning all those that are Christians. I believe in eternal security. But I believe that because I think the Bible teaches that, and I think the Bible teaches us that for our good. And I think that that doctrine, when not taught well from the scriptures, can lead to misunderstandings and actually can be used to our detriment rather than our good. What I want to put in your mind this morning is I want you to think of these two words, objective versus subjective. Now, you guys know my mother was an English teacher, and for some reason I always had a mental block with those two words. I never could quite get the difference between the two. But objective is objective truth. It means facts. It's, it's true regardless of how you feel. That's what objective truth is. And subjective is a word that speaks to our emotions and our moods at any given time, how we feel about a particular situation or a truth. And that shifts like the sand. The the reality is, is that there is an objective truth that we're going to look at in the Bible this morning that is true regardless of how we feel. But there is a subjective reality to our feelings that is crashing in on virtually every person in this room that fights against the very objective truth that we want to look at today. And so we want our subjective feelings to be informed by the objective truth rather than the other way around. Do you get that? So let me read Romans chapter 8, verse 35 and 39. And let me just put in one little tag. Um, Tyler said this, and I'm going to mention this again next week. Of VBS this summer, we're going to have lots of kids here. For some reason or another... Um, we're a little lower on uh, people that have volunteered so far to help, and we're getting close to that. And so we need you, if you're part of Crosspoint, to consider helping with VBS. You would greatly bless our preparation to be ready for maybe 200 and 250, maybe even 300 children that will be in this room from 9 to 12 in the morning on that week. If you can volunteer, you would greatly reduce our, our anxiety about our preparation you would greatly reduce our anxiety about our preparation if you signed up to volunteer soon. You would greatly (laughs) reduce our anxiety about our preparation if you signed up soon. Thank you. Paul writes, Romans 8, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, he's quoting Psalm 44 here, verse 22. 
For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God. It's been said that these few verses are like standing on the top of a grand staircase of Scripture, and I think that's true. Let me pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, as we mentioned last week, the the air is thin at the top of this mountain, and the oxygen is pure, it's unpolluted, it's pure gospel, it's pure God-exalting air. I pray that you would give us the capacity to breathe this into our spiritual lungs this morning, that it would fortify the Christian, and that it would melt the heart of a sinner, and that you would call them to faith and life and repentance and trust in Jesus today. I pray that you do this and a thousand other things that we don't even know that we need this morning as we look at this text. Help us to know, Lord, that you will bring your children, all of them, safely home. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me give you an outline of where we're going this morning, and then we're going to work through this text and look at this doctrine. Here's the outline for those of you that that are note-takers. We're going to look at the doctrine of eternal security in this text and in the context of what this text is written in Romans and then some other scriptures. Secondly, we're going to look at some objections to this doctrine and try and handle those biblically and help us understand it more, more thoroughly. And then thirdly, we're going, to, we're going to look at some reflections on assurance of salvation in the life of a Christian. So we're, first, we're going to look at the doctrine of eternal security in this text and as we zoom out. We're going to look at some objections to what I think this text is saying from some other well-meaning Christians. And thirdly, we're going to reflect on assurance of salvation and eternal security in the life of a Christian. So look look at this text here, verses 35 through 39. And we need to understand contextually what's going on in this text. This is the end, really, of Paul's argument up to this point. At the beginning of Romans All the way up to this point, Paul has been arguing for the utter grace of God in the gospel. He's made the point at the beginning of Romans that we are all lost, hopelessly in sin. All of us stand on equal footing in our rebellion against God, regardless of whether we come from a religious background, that's the Jew, or whether we come from a pagan background, an unbelieving background, that's the Gentile. All of us are by nature and by choice lost, fallen, sinful, separated from God, dead in our sins. And the answer to the way, the mystery, how any person that has rebelled against God and is dead in their sin could be made right with God is through the work of His Son. God sends Jesus to be the propitiation. That's a word that maybe some of you might be unfamiliar with, but it's such an important biblical word. God sends God the Father, sends God the Son to become a man fully and to be the propitiation. In other words, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for the sins of all those that would turn and trust in Jesus. 
So God is handling the problem of human rebellion and sin not by telling us that we need to improve, but by sending Jesus to live the life that we all failed at living in one way or another and to bear the wrath for our failure on the cross. And so Jesus' life becomes the righteousness, the righteous sacrifice to God that is needed and his death becomes the substitute for the punishment that all of us who believe in Jesus deserve. And that's the good news of the gospel. It's the grace of the gospel that God pours out the wrath of his holiness on his son rather than his people. And then the way he saves a person is he takes a dead heart and he makes it alive and he gives the gift of faith, which is not a work that we bring to the table, but something that God works in us and gives us. And then by this faith, which is ours because of God's sovereign grace and love and rebirth, we then are able to place our faith in Jesus and live for him. And as a result of that, that God has done all these things, not by any work on our part, but because of his love for his people, these now are the consequences of that grace. And Paul is saying, because of this, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 28 of this text, Paul is telling this, that all of this is because of God's work in eternity past to determine to save a great number of people. And he foreloved them, and he elected them, he chose them, he predestined them, and he guarantees that they will one day awaken to his grace, be justified by the faith that he gave them, and ultimately he guarantees that they will make it safely home and be glorified. And so here, what Paul is saying here at the end of Romans 8 is just merely a consequence of all that he said up to this point. He's saying that if all of this is true, if God has started and authored your salvation in eternity past, and he's guaranteed that in eternity future it will be secure, then look around you, what can separate you from the love of God? And he says... He gives some examples because he realized that these Roman Christians are enduring the first, the first part of intense persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. He's saying, shall, shall uh, distress or tribulation or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He, he's asking those questions because he knows that to some degree Christians that he's writing to are already experiencing them and certainly will experiencing them in the decades to come under the severe persecution of the Roman Emperor Nero. Paul is not saying that those things won't come to us or to the Christians that are his immediate audience. He's saying that even those things that will surely come will not separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 44 verse 22, which is a psalm in the Old Testament where Israel, the psalmist, is writing about the experience of Israel as they are lamenting how their enemies seem to be triumphing over them and how they are being killed. And Paul is applying the history of Israel to the life of the New Testament Christian. And he's saying, we, we are being killed. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Christianity, friends, know this, just by these few verses here, is not a promise of a comfortable life. Paul is saying that these things will come, but his point is, is that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
And then he concludes in verses 37, 38, and 39 by just listing off some couplings of things, the heights or depth, death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, powers, height, depth, or anything else in all creation. And, and, and much ink has been written on these verses, exactly what Paul is saying here. And I think that might be a profitable thing for us to look at at some point. But I think that the point of what Paul is making here, that he is making here, is just simply that there is absolutely nothing. There's nothing. And, and just in case he misses anything in verse 38, he says there, or verse 39, nothing else in all creation. In other words, if I've missed anything that you were thinking about, well, what about that? Even that, nothing else, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So here, here is, I think, in a summary statement, the conclusion of what Paul is saying to these Roman Christians and to us. And it is the doctrine of eternal security, which I would state like this very simply. God will preserve. In other words, God will ensure that all those whom he has saved will remain his people until the end of their life. In other words, a true Christian cannot, and really there are only one type of Christians, two Christians, but I use that phrase because in cultural Christian circles, you understand that there's lots of people that call themselves Christians and aren't truly, right? A true born-again Christian cannot lose their salvation. In fact, it was never theirs to lose in the first place. And I think that's been one of the main points of, of Romans chapter 8. And I think even in this text, even within Romans, we see two things, two, two primary issues that make this true. One, look again at verse 28 and 29 and 20 and 30 of Romans 8. I referred to this just a second ago. L listen to what he says in, in uh, let's look at verse 29. Paul is talking about those, for those whom he foreknew. Remember we talked about what that word foreknew means. It really, it means foreloved. For those whom he foreloved, he also predestined. In other words, he predetermined their future destination to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, so that's happened in eternity past, he also called that happens in your life. He awakens your life and your heart and your mind to the gospel. He gives you ears to hear. And those whom he called, he also justified. So when he calls you, with that calling comes the gift of a new heart that has faith as a gift with it. And by that faith then that your new heart that is, was once enslaved and is now freed can trust in Jesus and you're justified. And those whom he has justified, he also this is speaking of the future, but he's talking about it in past tense. He's also glorified. So verses 29 and 30 span the whole spectrum of God's dealing with your soul. It says that he, he foreloved you, and because he foreloved you, he predestined you, and because he predestined you, he called you, and because he called you, he justified you, and because he justified you, he past tense glorified you, even though that's in the future, he can speak of it as if it is already past, so it's going to happen. So do you see that in light of what verses 29 and 30 are saying about salvation, that it's God's work from the beginning to the end 
Both ends of the spectrum are set according to God's sovereign grace. The fact that you remain a Christian, if you're a true Christian, is a certainty. Do you see that? Verses 35 through 39 are just a consequence of that. And then let me show you one other thing that I think is is, is critical for us to see. Go to Romans chapter 6. Just flip over two chapters to Romans chapter 6. It's this beautiful doctrine of the union of Christ of a believer. We spent some time on this a few months ago when we were in Romans chapter 6. And the doctrine of the truth, the biblical truth of a Christian's union with Christ is that in salvation, God unites, he joins you together with Christ so that all that is Christ's is yours. And he makes us Think of this picture, because this is the way the Bible speaks of what it means to be a Christian and the church. He makes us part of the body, and he uses the metaphor that we are part of the body of Christ. So spiritually, he grafts us, he joins us, he unites us to Christ. And that's exactly what he is saying here in Romans chapter 6. Look at at verse 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus we're baptized into his death. And I think that baptism is speaking about the spiritual baptism. When the spirit of God comes and regenerates a soul, he makes us alive. And the spirit baptism that happens at salvation then is to be proclaimed through water baptism after a person comes to, to, to faith in Christ. We were, he says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus, in other words, saved, made alive, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, We're baptized into his death. In other words, the death that Jesus died on the cross, he died for us. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In other words, Jesus died for us. We were with him. Everything that he did in his death is ours. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So that now Jesus has got up from the grave. He bore the penalty for our sin. He rose again from the grave. So all of the credit of Jesus' death is ours because we've been united with him. And all of the righteousness and vindication and justification of Jesus' resurrection is ours because we're united with him. 4, verse 5, look at it. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So do you see that? Paul is saying that because you've been united to Christ, his death counts for you, and the future resurrection when Jesus comes back and brings his people home, and we are resurrected, and we live with him forever, that's certain because you are part of Christ. And that's Paul's reasoning. What or who can separate us from the love of Christ? Do you see that? That's the, that's the logic of Romans 8 verses 35 through 39. God's electing love in eternity past, which is a chain that can't be broken, And the union that the believer has with Christ, it it is a certainty. So from from that, I I, I clearly think that this is what the Bible teaches. But let's, let's just look just very briefly at a few other passages just to etch this in stone in our mind. John chapter 6, we're just going to put these up on the screen. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, 
not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him have, have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Have you ever tried to carry too much? Like, uh, you know, maybe some groceries from the car? When I was a little kid, all the bags were cardboard bags, and, you know, you could kind of, but now it's all this plastic stuff, and there's always something that's fallen out. Jesus doesn't drop any of what the Father has given him. That's what that text is saying. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't drop any apples on the way to the kitchen. And, and, and they go to John 10. Robert read it for us at the beginning, but I, I think it bears repeating. This is Jesus again speaking. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. He gives it to us. It's his to give. And they will never perish. And, and look at what verse 28 is saying. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So you're in Jesus' hand. Just get the imagery here. He says, I give you life. You, you didn't cooperate with me to agree to life. I give you life. Your salvation is a consequence of what I gave you. And you're in my hand. And nobody can snatch you out of the king of kings' hand. But as if that's not enough, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So you're in Jesus' hand in verse 27 and then the father's hand is around all of that because Jesus and the father are one. In other words, the Trinity is conspiring to keep you safe. Come on now. And, and let's not leave out the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit, get this imagery. You're in the Son's hand, enveloped by the Father's hand, and the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is airtight, watertight, sealing all of it, guaranteeing, even though you will face all of the things that Paul says will happen to Christians in Romans 8, 35 through 39, none of that can snatch you out of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit's hand and sealing. <laughs> Funny thing about sealing, a couple years ago I mentioned, I was talking about the Holy Spirit and, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and I talked about that, that flex tape, you know those infomercials where the guy cuts a boat in half? And um, he like tapes up the boat and then you see him out fishing, you know, and it's like the water doesn't get in because that seal, flex seal is so good. Well, um, apparently there is a really ambitious intern working for flex seal because somebody mentioned that on Facebook, like, ah, ha, ha, Brad, I appreciated your illustration about flex seal. And they like tagged flex seal. And this is no lie. 
Flex, the company has been sending me complimentary cans of Flex Seal about every six months since then. So apparently I am a, what do they call it, an influencer? I'm going to start endorsing like Maseratis or something. See what happens. I get it, and it's like a note. It's for Amazon, and it's a note. Thanks for your support for our product. <laughs> okay. Friends, nothing can snatch you out of a triune God's plans for your eternity. Listen, just finally, what, what, one more verse. There's many more we could read, but let me read to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is, I think inheritance is the future reward of the Christian to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this guarding, this keeping, isn't something that you are inactive in. The way God guards us is through the faith that he gave us by which we were justified that then we exercise. And we're going to talk about this in a moment. He keeps us by enabling us to do things to keep ourselves. God doesn't separate the end from the means by which he determines the Christian will get there. So, so just to repeat, I think that is clear, and I think we need to see this object of reality that Paul is talking about in 35 through 39, is nothing shall separate God's children from him. He will bring his children safely home, all of them. So the doctrine of eternal security, God will preserve all those whom he has saved and ensure that they endure to the end. Some objections now to this doctrine. Some people object and say that believing this truth only gives license to sinful living. And to some degree, I understand that objection and I, I, I agree that when proper, improperly applied and improperly understood that this truth when wrongly understood can give way to a kind of sinful liberty or antinomianism against the laws what that word means or against God's commands in other words you can live however you want and and I think all of us have probably seen that to some extent in maybe church cultures that we're a part of is that People think, well, I'm once saved, always saved. As if that's a kind of like, well, I, you know, I responded when I was eight years old at a VBS. And I came down for a prayer. And so that's kind of my fire insurance. And now I can kind of do whatever I want to do. And, and there's just kind of this get out of jail free card for this prayer that I repeated. And friends, that understanding of this truth is a warping of this truth. And it is a, it's, it's, it's a completely wrong it's a heretical understanding of this truth. Friends, we need to understand, and this is where all of us need to be chastened, that there certainly is such a thing that the Bible speaks about often 
called false assurance. In fact, Jesus speaks of it at the end of the uh, seventh chapter of Matthew in the S- Sermon on the Mount. He speaks about there will be those on that day who come to him and say, Jesus, didn't we do all of these wonderful things in your name? And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. So there can be a kind of self-absorption within Christian circles and in Christian community where people are self-deceived and what is at the very core of their desire to do good works is not an expression of their dependence on God, but really what is underneath it all is a desire to make themselves big, to make themselves be glorified, and they come to Jesus wanting glory and honor. And Jesus says, no, I never knew you. And there are people, I think, still today who can be self deceived. And oftentimes, listen to me, friends, oftentimes this self-deception and false assurance is facilitated by leaders, preachers, pastors of churches. Because the thing that drives many pastors and ministries is not the work of the Spirit in the hearts of people and how God will let that shake out, but numbers. And their desire to report statistics to their denominational leaders so that they feel good when they go to their minister meetings. Friends, that is wickedness straight from the pits of hell. And it's created a Bible Belt culture that still exists in America. And it's alive and well in the South that the number one commodity of that culture is false assurance. And all people care about is how many people they actually have attending the church so that they can feel like they're bigger and more fruitful and more successful than the poor guy down the street who's struggling who actually may be a true and faithful shepherd because he's being clear about the gospel. And he's not attracting people that just want self-esteem, self-help, tickling of their ears. Do you see that? I'm not against, I want a lot of people to come to Christ. But friends, we have to be careful. Even the way we do sort of the altar call culture and the American evangelicalism can be very dangerous. Just by asking people to raise a hand or physically move their bodies at the end of the service to respond to some maybe emotional gospel plea That can be a a, a good and powerful thing to do, but if attached to that, if that's the only thing that we're saying makes you a Christian, friends, that is a pathway to false assurance. You're not a Christian because you raised your hand or because you moved your body from the back row to the front. You're a Christian because God foreloved you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, he awakened your soul, he made Christ irresistible to you, you put your hope in him, and then you can be assured that that is actually something that you've done by the way that you now live your life. That doesn't mean that Christians won't sin. (laughs) I hope I don't have to convince you of that, right? Follow me around for a day. But it does mean that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that, as William Arnaud, the 1800s British preacher, said that the Christian is taking God's side against their remaining sin, where the unbelieving, self-deceived person who may think they're a Christian is still taking sin's side against the dreaded God. 
And so we know we are Christians not merely because we repeat a prayer or raise a hand or even join a church, but we know that we are Christians by the fruit to some degree that is born in our life. And that fruit, as Galatians chapter 5 says, is the heart of a Christian that loves what God loves. It's love, joy, peace. It can be very subtle. It can be very small. It can be almost imperceptible to us at times, but it is where we are loving God more than we're loving the things of this world and our former sin. Friends, there's much more that we could, we could say on that. True Christians will endure and persevere to the end. And understanding this truth does not give license to sinful living. In fact, I think that's the point of Romans chapter 6 that we went through. If we're truly born again, we have been freed from sin. And if we remain in our sin, we deceive ourselves. And then another objection before we end here with some reflections on assurance. Some people say, well, what about passages in the Bible that seem to warn that a Christian can lose their salvation? There are a few of them. And they're part of the Bible, clearly, and they're part of God's inspired word, and they apply to all of us. So let me read just one of them, one that's often noted, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. The writer of Hebrews speaking to Christians, and he says, speaking to the church in, uh, there in the Roman Empire at the time, and he says, for it is impossible, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding, them up to, holding him up to contempt. Verse 7, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated and receives, receives a blessing from God. But, verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Well, the purpose of today's sermon is not to exposit all of what's going on in Hebrews chapter 6, but let me just briefly say that first, as we look at the Bible, before we zero in on a couple issues in Hebrews chapter 6, we realize that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So all of it has been inspired by the Holy Spirit through these biblical authors. So the Bible does not contradict itself. And so in light of everything that we've read, first of all, before we even get into Hebrews chapter 6, in light of everything that we've read about how God keeps, about God's sovereignty in the life of a Christian, just Romans chapter 8 let alone John chapter 6 and John chapter 10 and Ephesians chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1. In light of what all of those texts have so definitively and clearly, in what seems to be clearly an airtight way, have said about the eternal security of true Christians, we have to mesh that with whatever's going on in Hebrews chapter 6. And it seems to me that the Bible will never contradict itself. So if you have a mountain of verses that clearly say this thing, and then you have a few verses that may be seeming to contradict that, in light of everything that this mountain of verses have said, we need to take that into consideration and we need to realize, ah, oh, the Bible will not contradict itself, so it must not be saying that. So what is it saying? I think that Hebrews chapter 6 is a warning 
that all people must heed. The writer of Hebrews is writing to people that he does not know whether or not all the individual people that are reading this letter are truly born again. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is writing this warning that true Christians need to heed. In fact, friends, I don't mean to bend your minds here too much. Although I believe that I cannot lose my salvation because of God, I believe that if I could lose my salvation, I would lose it every day. Do you see that? I don't, I don't persevere to the end because of anything in me. I persevere to the end because God will not let me go. And one of the ways that he ensures that I will persevere to the end is by telling me that if I do that, I will die. So the warning, listen to this, the warning becomes part of the means by which he accomplishes his end. Do you see that? I've used this analogy before. I think it's very important. I think it's, it's helpful. Picture a family that lives, that built a house on the edge of the interstate. Unwise, I know, but picture it. Just go with me. And the dad says to his boys as he's sitting on the porch and they're playing catch out in the front yard. He says, boys, if you throw the ball out into the interstate and chase the ball, you will surely die because there's trucks that are going down that road at 85 miles an hour. And if you run out into the street, you will die. And he's right. If you run out into the street, you will die. But he's a good dad. And if his boys get too close to the edge and they're not listening for some reason, he will jump up off the porch and he will grab them by the scruff of their neck and he will firmly plant them back on solid ground. And he will use his warning, he will shout to them when they are unaware, you're getting close to wake them up so that they realize they're close to danger. And so Hebrews 6 is that type of text in the life of a Christian. Don't get close. Do you see the Bible gives us this truth outside of time. It says what God has done and will do in the life of the believer. But the way he brings it about is by warning us in time. Do you see that? So there's nobody. Look, I think I'm a Christian. I do. And you're glad of that. You're glad that the pastor of your church. I think I'm a Christian. I'm pretty sure of that. But I also think Hebrews 6 applies to me. If, if, I, if, if I walk away from God, I will die. And if you walk away from God, you will die. So don't, <laughs> don't walk away from God. Don't walk away from God. There's more I could say about that text, but let's move on. Let, let me end with this. Reflections on assurance of salvation in the life of a Christian. Three brief ones. And the first is this, and we've, we've hinted at it. In fact, I think this is part of what Hebrews 6 is for. Is that God, and this, is, this sentence is not my sentence. I heard this at a conference several years ago by another well-known preacher that I trust. And it's this, God preserves us to the end by enabling us to do self-preserving things. 
God preserves us to the end by enabling us to do self-preserving things. So, so take in light everything that we've read from Romans 8, Jesus' words in John 6 and 10, Peter's words about how our salvation is kept in heaven for us, Paul's words to the Ephesians about how our salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit, and look at Jude. All of that is certain. In fact, it's so certain that Paul can speak of your final state as already being past tense. You're already glorified. And look what he says in Jude chapter 20. Not chapter 20, verse 20. It's only one chapter. You got nervous there. Whoa, my Jude isn't the same. Jude, just one chapter, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. In other words, keep yourself. Wait on the mercy. Think about others, how you can help them persevere. Hate the garment stained by flesh. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Do you see within that text there you have both? Verse 24 and verse 25 is all that needs to be said. Jesus is able to keep you. God is able to keep you. The Holy Spirit is able to keep you. And he will. But before that, the way he keeps you is by enabling you to do self-keeping things. He makes you, your heart was once enslaved. Your will was shackled. You were a slave to sin. He takes your old dead heart. He makes it alive. He regenerates it. And with a new heart comes new desires. And he works through those new desires which are not fully cultivated yet in the life of a young Christian. That's the process of sanctification. And he works in and through them enabling you to do things that will help you preserve to the end. Do you see that? That's the way he keeps you from stumbling, by enabling you to do things that keep you from stumbling. So the Christian life is important. So anybody that interprets this doctrine and says, once saved, always saved, I can do whatever I want, completely misunderstands the truth of the Christian life. Do you see that? I have a burden that you see that. Let's not be a cheap grace church. Just, just humor me and say amen. Okay. Thank you. I know it's Memorial Day weekend, but come on. Come on. Second reflection is some Christians will struggle more than others. And I have in mind here Christians whose, whose conscience is tender, who, who may be what Jesus calls a bruised reed, and who we in the body of Christ need to be on lookout for. In fact, when we get to Romans chapter 13 and 14, it's going to talk about how Christians whose consciences are stronger should bear with and be tender with Christians whose consciences are weaker. 
In fact, that's a big part of what 1 Corinthians 8 is about. There's this issue going on with meat that is sacrificed to idols in the Corinthian church. And Paul is speaking to the Christians who realize that there aren't really any true idols. These false gods that these pagans were sacrificing this meat to are false. And so Paul is basically saying, don't be junked up by that. Have yourself a steak. Because all of these false gods that these people were sacrificing this filet mignon to are false anyway. So fooey with that rubbish. Enjoy your food. But for Christians whose conscience might be more tender and weaker and who for whom it might be a stumbling block, don't flaunt your liberty in their face. Prefer them and don't have that stake in front of them because it might mess them up. The point is, is that some Christians' consciences are tender and we never know the experience and the background and the family situation that people come from and the experiences that they've had and the wounds that they have felt and the things that have been done to them and the things that they have given themselves over to. And there will be some Christians who are tossed to and fro by their subjective moodiness and weakness. And I think I'm one of those people. I do. I, man, if you could, oh, if you could follow me around for a week and you could get inside my head, it would, it, well, it would solve our children's ministry space problems. I'll tell you that much because you'd go to another church. You'd go to another church. Some Christians are weak. And somehow or another, God is providential in all of that. And if you find yourself, if you're a person who, who, who oftentimes, let me just put this in your, in your heart and then move on. We don't have time to develop this fully. If you're a Christian that struggles with assurance, ah, like I pray that this message helps you. I, I pray that a thousand other things help you from the Bible and the life of the church. But I also want to say that I don't want to negate the all-comprehensive exhaustiveness of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 in your life, that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. And so maybe, maybe your struggles with assurance are in some way part of God's grace to you to actually keep you in that tension and not sort of lose yourself into self-comfort and self-confidence and that struggle that you feel for 80 years, you will look back on it someday and you will kiss that wave that dashed you against the rock of ages because you realize it was God's kindness to make you like that and it produced in you a kind of trembling dependence on God. You see that? And then it brings me to the third reflection on assurance, and it is this, that living life in the local church is absolutely essential. Friends, you can't do this on your own. That's why we take membership very seriously here. That's why I think if you're a regular attender of Crosspoint and you're not a member of this church, I think you need to be. I think you need to have your ears peeled for the next membership class where you learn about what we believe about all of the major doctrines of the Bible, and you learn about what we think it means to be a member of the church. And in order to be a member of the church, you have to sit down with a pastor and you have to tell them how you became a Christian. And that may be intimidating to some of you, but friends, it's, it's not because we want to be intimidating, but it's because we want to be good shepherds. 
we don't want to give you false assurance that you're okay with God simply because you physically locate yourself in this building on Sunday mornings. People believe all sorts of crazy stuff. And we want to make sure you don't believe crazy stuff. And we want to make sure that you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation and not yourself. And we think that living life in the local church is, is, is really, really critical. Having your name known and cared for. In fact, you, every Monday, we have a member directory of Crosspoint. On average, there's probably seven, 800 people here on a Sunday morning. And I'm thankful for all of you. And I love every one of you. There's about 600 members of Crosspoint. And I know every one of those people. I know their names. And I look at their faces every day when I, uh, every Monday when I looked at all of their n- names and faces in our member directory, except for those of you that don't have your picture in the directory and you need to find Robert Ward to get your picture in the directory. And, and, I'm, and, and we're responsible for one another. And, and we, we know who you are and you're known and, and we care more about being clear about what it means to be a Christian than just numbers. And we think that we then, the Bible has a whole host of things to say about then what it means to actually be a Christian who's part of the body, that we all have a kind of corporate responsibility to help one another live this way. We should be on a kind of community assurance building project. That's the life of the local church. Do you realize that the person sitting next to you, if they're a believer and they're part of the same local church, their assurance is part of your life's mission. To clarify that, to bring encouragement to them, to stake yourself next to them as the storm blows in their life and for you to be part of what God uses to stabilize their subjective feelings to the objective truth of Christ's work in their life. And and you just can't do that by sneaking in and sneaking out. I think you know what I mean. Let the Holy Spirit convict you if that's you. Let's pray. Lord, <laughs> I am so governed sometimes by my feelings. And I know my brothers and sisters in this room are prone to that as well. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or danger or nakedness or sword? No. Even though we are being handed over to death in some instances every day, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Height or depth, power, authority, angels, rulers, life or death, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. Lord, that is truer than our feelings. Help us to see that so that we can fight sin and our feelings and fasten ourselves to the one who has fastened himself to us. I pray that you'd help us with this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.